Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's always good to be together, whether we're online or in, in person. Of course, we're online right now. And today, we're continuing in our series called Sheltered, Sheltered into New Life. And uh, we've been looking at the characters in the Bible whose lives were on lockdown for a long, challenging season. But that season led to a profound transformation in their lives. So far, we've looked at Jesus. We've looked at Elijah. We looked at Jeremiah. Last week, Pastor Tim did an incredible message on King David. Today, we're going to look at Moshe. That is the Hebrew name of Moses. And the title of this message is The Long Journey to Find Our Voice. And the question I want to start with this morning is, what kind of person and what kind of life history of that person is needed for leading two to three million very cranky people out of Egypt and into a barren desert for the next 40 years? Well, welcome to the story of Moses, who spends the first 40 years uh, privileged and spoiled in Pharaoh's palace, the second 40 years humbly tending sheep in, a, in the remote mountains of Saudi Arabia, and the third 40 years becoming the greatest name in Judaism. And what I want you to notice today is that by the time Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Sinai Desert for 40 years, he's nothing like the man he was when he first left Egypt 80 years earlier. So have you ever noticed how the, most of the best movies out there tend to be movies where someone is on a journey to find something? And what makes these movies so captivating and exciting to watch is the adventure that takes place on the journey. For instance, Indiana Jones is trying to find the best, the, the Lost Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harry and Sally are trying to find love in Harry and Sally. Dorothy is trying to find her way back home in The Wizard of Oz. Treasure hunter Bill Paxton is trying to find the heart of the ocean pendant in the Titanic. Captain John Miller and his squad are trying to find private first class uh, James Francis Ryan in Saving Private Ryan. Truman is trying to find freedom in the Truman story, uh, Paul Edgecombe is trying to find justice for John Kofi in The Green Mile. Ali Campana is trying to find fame and fortune in A Star is Born. And everyone is trying to find a missing fish named Nemo in Finding Nemo. The journey to find whatever is missing is what makes these movies so appealing. And the truth is that all of us spend a considerable amount of time and energy journeying to find things that are missing in our lives, whether it's trying to find love or fame and fortune or justice or freedom, our way back home, or even where we left our keys as we were trying to rush out the door. Oh, man, I'd love to have a dollar for every time I can't find my keys. And please don't tell me about those Bluetooth key fobs because I brought one of those and I lost it and I haven't been able to find it. Okay. Life is really a long journey to find something that's missing in our lives. And if that's true, then the second question I would like to ask today is, what are you currently looking for that's missing in your life? Can you take a moment to think about that question? Early in the 20th century, England was on the brink of war with Germany and things were looking very grim for their future. The German war machine was daunting. And the people needed to find enough courage and hope to face, in the face of a ruthless enemy, 
that seemed unstoppable. Prince Albert ascended to the throne at that time, and the country was anxiously waiting to hear a strong message from him. But he had a serious stuttering problem that was certain to undermine the country's confidence in him as a leader. The movie The King's Speech chronicles Prince Albert's challenging journey to find his voice for that important historical moment. And although in the end he overcame his stuttering problem, the story is more about Prince Albert finding inner strength and courage than it is about finding a technique to overcome his speech problem. Well, today we're going to see a similar journey for Moses and on his personal journey to find inner strength and courage that he will need, he'll he'll need to become fearless and a hopeful leader that the Israelites needed to do those 40 laps around the Sinai Desert. If you recall, Moses' story begins when the Israelites are already slaves in Egypt, and they've been slaves for over 380 years by the time Moses is born. At that time, Pharaoh is feeling threatened by the Israelites' continued growth and prosperity. Even though they were slaves, we Jews tend to prosper in any living condition we're thrown into. And so he gives orders that all the male Israelites should be killed at birth. And so in an attempt to save Moses' life, his mom puts him in a basket, and she sets him drifting down the Nile River. And as divine fate would have it, Moses is rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who then, through divine providence, enlists and pays Moses' mom to take him back to her home and breastfeed him until he is weaned. And so for the first few years of Moses' life, he lives with his biological family in a modest home with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. And I have to believe that he knows who they are. He knows uh, he's an Israelite, not an Egyptian. He's a Jew. But he also knows that he's destined to live in Pharaoh's palace. And so after a few years, Moses is uprooted from his underprivileged life. And he'll spend the next three and a half decades living as a person of extreme privilege. So what do these opposing experiences do to a person's inner being? You know, in my story, up until the age of 13, my, my family lived in East Los Angeles. And as white Jews, we were definitely the minority there. And many of my friends and schoolmates were Hispanic, and so I developed a lot of the cultural norms that were consistent with that Latin culture. Clothing, baggy. Speech, este vato, que pasa. Music, Louis, 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 Louis. And it's definitely where I developed my snobby love for Mexican food. Sorry, Colorado, Tex-Mex is not Mexican food. My parents moved to the San Fernando Valley, north of Los Angeles, when I was 13, and it was like culture shock for me. The San Fernando Valley is where we get valley girls and valley talk from. Oh, my God, whatever. Ooh, grody, totally. And I went from flannel, flannel barrio to polo preppy in a nanosecond. And that extreme cultural shift for a 13-year-old created a really difficult season for me trying to figure out who I was and who I wasn't. I even had occasional thoughts of suicide back then. And so I, can imagine, I can't imagine how difficult it was for young Moses to be uprooted from his family and thrust into Pharaoh's palace. What kind of a cultural shock was that for him? But just like I eventually adjusted to my new environment, I imagine Moses eventually adjusted to his as well and probably even preferred his new cushy lifestyle. 
I mean, he lived in the most luxurious home in Egypt. He had 24-7 servants attending to his needs, ate the tastiest delicacies from all around the world, and he drove a blinged-out chariot with a 6.2 supercharged V8, 840-horsepower engine that was lined with Kreger Supersport chrome wheels. He must have been the envy of Egypt, but I also imagine he must have been a spoiled brat, eventually looking down on his family and the people he really belonged to. What a bunch of losers they were. And worst of all is that the privilege that Moses benefited from was built on the backs of his own people, the Israelite slaves who were forced into hard labor to construct Pharaoh's lavish cities. For three and a half decades, Moses benefits from an unjust and rigged system that beleaguered his people And there's no indication that it bothered him during that time. But something happens to Moses in his 40th year of life that makes him become woke, so to speak, to the injustice that was taking place before his eyes. On that day, Moses goes out for a walk and he ends up where he can see his people. And he stops to watch them doing their hard labor. Something Moses never had to do a single day in his life. And although this is certainly not the first time that Moses has seen their struggle, for some reason on this day, it's different from all the others. Because on this day, Moses becomes enraged by the injustice that's playing out before him. And on this day, Moses is going to do something about it. Here's the story. It's found in Exodus chapter 2, 11 through 12. And here's what it says. One day after Moses had grown up, and we're told in Acts 7.23 that he's 40 years old, so he's been there 40 years, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and then looking that way, he wants to make sure no one is seeing him. He killed the Egyptian and then hides them in the sand. Now, I don't know what the population of Egypt was back then. It's got to be huge. But it looks to me like Moses' strategy to right this wrong is to get rid of one privileged Egyptian at a time. Probably not a very moral or sustainable strategy in my estimation. And quite honestly, it seems pretty impulsive and unplanned. But Moses seems to feel comfortable that no one witnessed this murder. The very next day, something happens that seems just as impulsive and just as unsustainable. Moses sees two Jews fighting with each other. And so he decides to intervene. But it doesn't go well, to say the least, because one of them says to Moses, so do you want to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Moses thought no one was looking. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And now he's going to be forced to flee Egypt as a fugitive where he will spend the next 40 years of his life tending sheep. But before we move on to that part of the story, I want you to connect to to something here. And it's the two issues that Moses is attempting to reconcile. Number one, he's trying to deal with Egyptian power and privilege. Number two, he's trying to deal with Jew-on-Jew 
hostility. Both seem to be important social justice problems for Moses at that moment. And I suppose, it, I suppose it would be fair and even contemporary in light of all the recent events in our country to ask the question, which problem is more important, Egyptian power and privilege or Jew on Jew hostility? Now, some people back then might respond to these questions saying, Egyptian privilege and power must be replaced with equity for all. Others would say, no, the real problem is dealing with Jew-on-Jew -Jew hostility. Still others might say, well, there wouldn't be Jew-on-Jew -Jew hostility if the Egyptian system wasn't so stacked against them. And all I have to say is, welcome to the discussion table about racism in America. Because when it comes to dealing with these tough questions, nothing has really changed very much in our world in over 6,000 years of history. Because we humans are all flawed, and sadly, we find these kind of racial and ethnic and gender disparities playing out all throughout history and all throughout our world. But I hope that you're taking the time right now to research all the perspectives in regard to these questions in our country, because you cannot really make an informed decision on this subject unless you are informed about all these different perspectives. You can't just be an echo chamber for CNN or Fox News talking points. Now, I, I've been on this journey ever since the death of George Floyd. Wish I had been on the journey before that. But um, I recently met with three separate, on, on three separate occasions over Zoom with all of our black adults who attend Cornerstone because I needed to hear their perspectives especially their experience attending Cornerstone as a person of color. Some of it was difficult to hear, but it was all really helpful. And I'm thankful that these men and women were gracious and courageous enough to just lay it all out there. Four weeks ago, I attended a three-day retreat on racism, uh, and I learned a ton of helpful information that I was previously clueless about. You know that phrase, you don't know what you don't know? And then I've read several books. I've watched a few documentaries on this subject as well. I'm on a mission to find my voice in such a complex and important issues taking place right now. And I'm staying open and I'm listening and I'm learning because unlike Moses' first two misguided attempts to bring a solution to the issues of his day and did it in a very reckless and unsustainable way, I want to jump into the issues of our day with a moral and sustainable action plan for myself, for Cornerstone, and in just a couple weeks, we're going to launch a new six-week six series that's going to focus on the subject of reconciliation. We have a lot planned during this series uh, that we'll, we'll address more of the, on this particular subject and way beyond that because the heart of the gospel, the very heart of God, is about being reconciled to God and to each other. And as followers of the one who gave his life to reconcile us, we should be the ones who are out front leading the charge in this endeavor, which admittedly, as a church, we haven't done so well in the past. And I felt like I just couldn't teach on this passage about Moses and what was going on with Israelites without pointing out some of the ironic uh, similarities taking place in Egypt back then to the contemporary issues going on in our country right now. All right. Because Moses kills uh, an Egyptian, he's forced to leave his privileged life. He'll spend the next 40 years tending sheep in what is now the mountain region of Saudi Arabia. 
We're not given much details about what life was like for Moses during this time of his life. But we do know what life, what the life of a shepherd was like back then. And I believe it is safe to say that is the antithesis of a privileged life. It was hard work. You're on the move all the time. You don't drive a blinged out chariot. My guess is that the trauma of having to leave his humble biological family in those first few years and then having to adjust to a new affluent family for the next 38 years or so and then having to leave that affluent family as a fugitive and adjust to a new family as, as a humble shepherd for the next 40 years has taken its toll on Moses' emotional psyche. Why do I say this? Because by the time he encounters God in a burning bush 40 years later, one of the many reasons that Moses is reluctant, and he gives multiple reasons why he's not the right guy to travel back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, is because he appears to have a stuttering or a stammering problem. In Exodus 4.10, Moses says to God, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Well, That's not what the Hebrew actually says. The literal Hebrew says, I am not a man of straight words. It's the word plumb line. And so this isn't about not having the right words. It's about having trouble getting the words out of his mouth. And then he says, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, meaning that this is a problem that that has plagued him for a good part of his life. And then he finishes by saying, I'm just slow of speech and tongue. But the Hebrew word doesn't mean slow. It means severe. And Moses is simply saying, this has been really a bad problem for me. Now, stammering can be caused by physiological problems, but it can also be caused by prolonged emotional stress and trauma. And Moses has come an awful long way, emphasis on the word awful, from that spoiled, brash, privileged young man who single-handedly, I mean, on his own, single-handedly, murdered an Egyptian and then had the chutzpah to tell two fighting Jewish slaves, I know what's best for you. To the insecure man standing before God in that burning bush. The years have not been so kind to Moses. He's lost his voice. He's lost his confidence. He's insecure. He doesn't know who he is anymore. And who can fault him for all he's been through. And so in the midst of all of Moses whining to God about why he's not the right guy for this job. God says to him, this is Exodus chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. Moses, what's that you have in your hand, Moses? Moses said, well, uh, that's my staff. I, I, I use it to lead my sheep. It's the most important tool I have to do my work. Okay, I can see why it's so important to you, but do me a favor, will you? Let go of your most important tool. Let go of the thing that you value most in your life, the thing that you put your trust in the most. Throw it down to the ground. And Moses obeys God, but when he throws it down to the ground, it turns into a snake. 
which now renders his most valuable tool worthless and dangerous, I might add. And then God says something peculiar to Moses. He says, pick it up, Moses. Oh, by the tail. Now, most wise snake handlers will tell you not to pick a snake up by the tail. Why? Because then the snake can curl back and bite you. Typically, if for some reason you should want or should need to pick up a snake, you should pick it up closer to its head to avoid being bitten. And I hope you can see that this little exercise that God is giving to Moses is a huge lesson about trust. He's got to let go of the most important thing in his life. He has to pick it back up uh, as a snake, and he's got to pick it up by the tail, which makes him vulnerable. And I'm sure Moses could have given God a number of excuses why he didn't want to let go of his staff or pick it up by the tail once it becomes a snake, just like he's given a number of excuses why he's not the right guy for the Egypt job. But Moses finds himself in an important teachable moment. And when he reaches down to pick up that snake by its tail, instead of biting him, it turns back into his shepherd's staff. It's a defining moment for Moses. Because from this point on, Moses never again refers to his staff, to this staff, as his staff. From now on, Moses will call it the staff of God. Isn't that awesome? From this point on, the staff of God becomes Moses' most valuable tool. It becomes the voice he needs in Egypt and then in the wilderness as Moses does incredible supernatural things on God's behalf with that staff in his hand. So remember the first question I asked earlier, what kind of person and what kind of life history is needed for leading two to three million very cranky people out of Egypt into a barren desert for the next 40 years? The answer is a person with a life story like Moses who became weak and insecure due to a series of life events, but became strong and courageous through newfound trust in God. And the second question I ask is, what are you currently looking for that's missing in your life? Maybe you lost your voice from the events that have taken place along the way in your journey. And what are you holding on to that keeps you from trusting God? And are you ready to throw it down? Allow it to turn into the inner strength and courage that can only come from trusting in God. Jesus said it this way. At least I believe this is what he meant in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life 
and only a few find it. I believe the narrow road is the hardest road because it's the road where you let go of all the things that you value most in your life and instead you put all your trust in God. It's the road less traveled, but it is the most exciting road to travel down. And so if you've lost your voice, let God become your voice today. You know, when, when Moses tells God that he has a speech problem, this is what he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. May it be a blessing to you right now. He told Moses, who gave humans their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what you need to say. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of Moshe, one of the greatest figures in Judaism today, the greatest figure in Judaism today. <clears throat> you had him go on quite a journey, Lord. And uh, he's, he's, his journey is not unlike a lot of our journeys, where it's just a, a mixed bag of blessing and conflict and confusion and change, cultural shifts. And, uh, and a lot of times we find ourselves just like Moses, just kind of being weak and insecure from it all. But I'm thankful for the encounter he had with you at the burning bush where you instilled that confidence back in him, only this time it shifted from his own confidence to the confidence that you put in him. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to be able to speak on your behalf. We want your words to be in us and speak through us so that we would have confidence that whatever comes out, whatever flows out of our mouth, is exactly what needs to be said, even if we don't think so. And so we're all trying to find something, Lord. May the one thing that we find this morning be trust in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take communion today. And uh, hopefully you have some elements in front of you. If not, you can, you can go and, you know, if you only have milk and graham crackers, that'll work. Um, but let's take communion together. Communion. Common union. This is the common union we have, which is faith in Jesus, particularly what he did for us on that cross. And this is our affirmation that we trust God. I mean, when we do this, we're saying, we're, we're, we're believing, we're trusting in you, God. We're trusting our lives with you. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could live. And not just to live you know, a mediocre life, but to live a incredible, adventurous, purposeful life. And ironically, um, today at sunset begins Yom Kippur, the the second of the the three fall feasts, and um, it starts tonight at sunset. <clears throat> Yom Kippur 
was about forgiveness. And when the temple still existed, you know, the people would come and, and they would slaughter a bull and they'd take the blood back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the, the, the mercy seat of God. This is how people were forgiven. But once the temple was destroyed, it shifted to prayer. So Jews, millions of Jews around the world tonight are going to go to their synagogues and they're going to start praying um, prayers of forgiveness. They're asking God to forgive them first and, and ask that their names would be put into the book of life for the next year, that he would forgive their sins for the previous year. But we're told in the book of Hebrews that it was insufficient because, number one, you had to come back every year, year after year. And number two, you had to use the blood of animals, and that made it insufficient. And he says that Jesus comes, he fulfills this feast in those two ways. Number one, you know it's his blood that he, that he sheds that brings forgiveness to us. And number two, you don't have to come back year after year anymore. He died once and for all. I encourage you to read it. Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 8 through 10. Um, it'll give you a lot of insight. I mean, really, it's all you have to read about to know what Yom Kippur is about. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, <clears throat> he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And then he took the cup, the cup of wine. Remember that they're at a Passover Seder, which observes the, the slaughter of the perfect Lamb of God. And, and this ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus is going to be slaughtered the next day. And he says, this cup is the new covenant I'm making with you, the forgiveness for sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. I pray you'd be blessed. God bless you.